Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I am so excited about today's episode. We are going to cover something that is actually a really big part of my life. It is the topic of my dissertation, as a matter of fact. I focus so much on cognitive therapy on this podcast, but my other favorite orientation is family systems. And what is family systems? When you say family therapy, people just assume you're going to have the whole family in a session. And that's true. But it's much more involved than just getting the whole family together in front of a therapist. It's much deeper and more complex and actually more interesting than that. We look at when we're taking a systemic approach, we examine the individuals in the family in their context of the family. Think about a mobile and all the parts that hang off it, and they are perfectly balanced. And if you move one part of it, you pull one down a little bit or tug another one up, the entire mobile is going to move. All the elements of the mobile will adjust because one has shifted. And that's what family members are like from a systemic perspective. We believe that individuals can't be fully understood apart from the system. We look at the profound influence of the system's rules, the system's expectations, the system's norms. And the fascinating thing is that these norms are not typically available to the family members. Family members are very well aware of things like, oh, in this family, we tend to go into this field for our profession, or in this family, we tend to vote in this direction, or in this family, we tend to believe this, we go to church on Sunday, that sort of thing. What we're talking about here are norms and expectations for relationship closeness and separateness. What is permitted? Are we allowed to be very independent in this family or are we expected to stay very close emotionally? Is any attempt to carve out independence considered threatening to the family system? And in those cases, we call this dynamic enmeshment. And many families struggle with enmeshment. They see closeness as a good thing, which it can be, but too much closeness can be detrimental to individuals within the family because they aren't able to explore who they are and cultivate their own unique identity. To help me delve into this, to go deeper into the topic of enmeshment and explore its impact on family members, I've invited psychotherapist Mary Beth Somich to the program. Here's a little more about Mary Beth. Mary Beth Somich, LPC, is a licensed therapist with a private practice in North Carolina called Your Journey Through. She completed her graduate training at Columbia University and specializes in family dynamics. Mary Beth is passionate about promoting modern mental health and making therapy accessible, relatable, and relevant to your life. She also helps other therapists promote their own mental health platforms through expanding their reach on Instagram and building thriving private practices. You can find her at Your Journey Through, yourjourneythrough.com, 
or check out her podcast, My Therapist Thinks. Our conversation about enmeshment up after this. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, will learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood, will identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals, and will together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Mary Beth, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. I have been wanting to cover this topic. I don't even know if my audience knows that my dissertation was in family systems. Specifically, I looked at individuation from family of origin and identity development in college students. So I was examining participants' family dynamics as these dynamics relate to the adolescent's ability to carve out an independent identity. What we learn in family systems theory is that our family of origin dynamics, they have a way of influencing us in other relationships in our lives that we aren't maybe always 100% aware of. So that's the kind of thing that Mary Beth and I are going to try to dig into a little bit today. But Mary Beth, thanks again for joining me on the program today. Of course, your dissertation topic could not be more in line with what I do. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed you work with, so you're in private practice and you work with adolescents quite a bit and young adults. Yeah, so teens and young adults. So college population is like a huge population that I work with. So anywhere from like 13 to 35, but that I would say most commonly between like 16 and 22. Um, So really, you know, I will get into it, but talking about things like enmeshment and differentiation and moving away from family of origin and creating that independence, like in that space where, you know, usually you're in your college years. Yeah. And that's exactly what I tackled in my dissertation because I was looking at colleges, that space where you get this distance And you get to have a little bit of objectivity now as you interact with other students, the friends that you're making, you go, wow, my family, I see some differences compared to my roommate's family. Maybe my family is calling me every single day or now FaceTiming every single day, whereas my roommate, they haven't checked in with their parents in like three weeks. So you see these different dynamics, these different rules of connectedness and separateness within the family. But before we get into that, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm getting really excited here. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Let's talk about the basic notion because when I was teaching this, I used to teach this course at the grad level, teaching people who were wanting to become counselors. Mm -hmm. And initially, sometimes people really resist the idea when you start talking about the notion of enmeshment and you describe some of what that would entail. Many people get a little bit uptight. They go, hey, I'm close with my family. And I think that's a good thing. So help the listener understand why sometimes there is such a thing as being too close. Yeah. So enmeshment is a symptom of family dysfunction. You know, there are many families that are close and that's wonderful and togetherness is prioritized. 
But sometimes it's prioritized a little bit too much to almost an unhealthy manner. So enmeshment can be disguised as like the strong sense of togetherness and family unity. Often there are unwritten rules that you might abide by in the family and you don't question them because then chaos ensues. (laughs) Um, And your individual needs and wants are not always prioritized because you might be afraid of disrupting the system in place. So the reason that this becomes a problem is because individuals from enmeshed families often struggle with establishing like a separate and independent sense of self as they enter adolescence and adulthood. And adolescence is really the time when this should start to occur, like the the grip lessens and, and you really start to explore your individuality. And I'll just speak from personal experience in my office with my clients, you know, they come in They're highly dependent on family members looking to them for approval. They're struggling with boundaries and assertive communication, not even just in their families, but in their lives and in their relationships. And they have no idea why. And so we sit together and we kind of explore this. And yeah, it can definitely be taken too far, that family closeness. And that's very confusing for people. And it's I mean, between you and me, when I would hear a student, and because I was teaching grad school, so these were adults and oftentimes people who were doing a career change. So they were coming back. So they were not late adolescent type adults. They were 35, 45. And when they would resist, of course, in my head, I'm like, you're probably enmeshed. (laughs) (laughs) You don't like hearing this because it's challenging that this closeness that probably at some level, you've sometimes felt, oh, this is a little too close. Like, really, do I need to tell my aunt this business about my marriage and my sex life? Those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And you kind of sensed it. But then I'm presenting this information and you're seeing it and you don't like it because you're defensive about the norm within your family. You you mentioned unwritten rules, which I think is so important too, because I talked about family rules. And initially people think, oh, everyone does their own laundry or something like that, right? Where it'd be Mm -hmm. a very basic kind of chore, a division of labor or something along those lines. But these unwritten rules are very, very strong and yet very sneaky. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, the chores I'm talking about, you know, you know, not to rock the boat and Mm -hmm. you, for instance, you don't question mom, right. Or you are expected to spend every single holiday with your parents, no exceptions. And it's not okay. If you don't like, there's some kind of emotional consequence communicated to you. So those are the types of rules that I'm, I'm really talking about. I have this great example because when I was teaching this, I asked students to dig deep. And I said, you guys dig deeper because at first they would come up with those more tangible rules because it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit harder because how are we, I mean, you got to dig into what hasn't been available to you. I said, think about the things that you have to do, but maybe other people don't have to do in their families or these expectations. And like you said, these emotional consequences where you will be made to feel that you've betrayed your family when you do something that's really just about you having an independent life. And so these sisters, and I'll never forget, it was such a great example. They raise their hand. They're like, oh, we have one. When mom eats ice cream, everyone has to eat ice cream. Oh, so specific. (laughs) Right? Because the family rule was mom wants to have sweets and she doesn't want to feel guilty or bad about having sweets. Wow. And so everyone had to partake or else she would be, I don't know what what the emotional consequence would be in that case, but there would be some sort of shame or she's going to make you feel bad in in whatever way she was going to do it. But isn't that interesting? I was like, oh, they nailed it. (laughs) That's a a great example. And just, you know, how they will feel if they don't right? Like I'm not feeling ice cream 
tonight. I don't want ice cream. I'm really full. And then what? (laughs) Exactly. Not okay in that family. And that was such a great example. Then I use it, of course, in subsequent classes because I wanted to make sure everyone understood that they're so sneaky and something that you just can't put a finger on, which is why the work you do is so important. So let's look at the, the idea of if you're too close how this can impact, like you talked about in my dissertation as well, an ability to launch, an ability to find yourself, your own identity. And it's something that I think people definitely struggle with in the age group that you're dealing with, but it can linger. I mean, you can have people who are enmeshed with their family of origin in their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I can speak to a few ways that this shows up um, for clients of mine. And I mean, when you're trained in this work, you tend to see it even in like friends and family sometimes oh, yeah. too. I mean, it's hard to hide. So one thing I would say is, you know, you're responsible to help and care for or even rescue a family mm-hmm. member. Mm-hmm. And think about how that can then get in the way of developing your own relationships. So Mm -hmm. I tend to see this happen in romantic relationships where they, a certain client is struggling to prioritize a partner and that partner becomes frustrated because the family is always the main priority. So for instance, an adult male client prioritizing mom instead of his wife or girlfriend or fiance or whatever she may be, um, or vice versa with a woman and not prioritizing her partner. So that can really show up in that way. And this person normally has no idea they're even doing it because it's just the expectation. Right. They have no idea. They, they think that's loyal. They think it's loving. I used to talk about how love and loyalty, this can get very conflated and it can get confusing. People don't understand. And I, again, it was so funny because it was all the students who I knew were struggling with this themselves yeah. that, would, that would resist it because it was threatening their understanding of the, the rules in their home that maybe they hadn't fully articulated or hadn't come to light within themselves. And so the idea to them, if they would maybe get married and move a couple cities away, that would be disloyal. Those were for those families that that didn't really truly love each other. We love each other in a way that other families don't. Mm-hmm. And that's why we move right next door to mom and dad and then have our family and so on and so on. And, and there's that the threat to the family. Yes. I'm so glad you touched on that. Yep. Because it contributes to shame and this mm. idea of disloyalty. And when there's shame, it creates resistance. So when we talk about witnessing the resistance to admitting that this is even a problem, that's really rooted in shame that might yeah. be felt if if we were to really tackle this or even to start differentiating and moving away from our family of origin. And then that blocks the ability to really identify and pursue your actual wants and needs. Yeah. And identifying your wants and needs is part of figuring out who you are and how important that is during that stage of life. And so I get a lot of clients feeling lost in that realm. It's so true. I love this. Uh, I don't know where I heard this, but it's a quote that I must have heard in one of my psych courses over the years, but the job of a parent is to work yourself out of a job. Oh, I like that. Isn't, isn't that great? It's so freeing and it's so confirming. So when parents, because I understand on the other side of things, parents who are enmeshed with their kids, they have good intentions. They just want to protect. And of course, in this day and age with the helicopter parenting and people texting their parents, I'm sure you're seeing truly 
very different realities in the family dynamics compared to even 15 years ago, because now we can FaceTime, we can text every day. So I'm concerned the population that I studied of college students are tethered to their families in ways that they weren't before. And it absolutely, it has to, there's no way it can't impede their identity development. And so that shame, I think, would linger even more so thanks to technology. I mean, technology is such a wonderful thing, but in this case, I think it absolutely can impede young adult development. Yes, I would absolutely agree. And I think it is very generational and very cultural. I think the baby boomers were raised to be a little more detached from their Mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. And they almost like swung the pendulum the complete opposite way and overcompensated by developing into helicopter parents and saying, (laughs) you know, I want to do this differently, but almost overcorrected. And so now we have a generation that is very attached and the enmeshment is high. And I think it kind of just goes through culturally like through decades um, mm-hmm. and generations. And, and we're in one that is really struggling with enmeshment. Are you able to work with families then? Because as I was saying, I think it's really important that parents understand. And I try to underscore it even with friends that when they say something about how independent their kid is, I'm like, oh, wow, that that just means you did such a great job as a parent that they feel confident and you instilled in them that sense of self that they could take on challenges and take on life on their own. And sometimes a little subtle reframe can, I'm hoping, can be supportive. Definitely. And I do do work with parents and in families systemically to to try to reframe that and to challenge some of those ideas um, because it is just so important. And I think, you know, some parents can get lost in the journey of parenthood and their child becomes their whole life and their job. And then, you know, when it is time for that child to launch, they feel a little bit lost. Like, who am I? I've just been a mom or a dad or a parent for, you know, 18 years or less or more. And what do I do now? And so that there's that resistance too. the parent is struggling with their own identity formation. Going back to grad school days, I would watch these videotapes of Jay Haley and Salvador Mnuchin and these like old school family therapists. And in those days, if you were a family therapist, you weren't going to see an individual because you didn't believe it was even effective. And I actually agree with children and adolescents for the most part, you can do great work in a session, but they're going home to the system. And if the people in charge of the system who have the power, which are the parents, if they aren't they aren't involved in some of the changes that need to happen, I don't know how effective things can be. Do you get to see an entire family in your sessions or typically is it just an individual? Because I don't know what currently insurance will pay for. Perhaps it's different based on how many people they're willing to pay for and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I actually um, am private pay, so I don't deal with insurance mainly for that reason. I have a whole blog on my website about why I don't take insurance because of all the rules and they require diagnosis and they limit you to this many sessions without even knowing you saying you better be fixed by then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I have a lot of like ethical issues with insurance, but in my work, I really encourage parent involvement when it comes to teenagers. And you know, it gets a little different when I see college kids because their families may not even be local. Um, right. But it's interesting because some parents are totally on board. Others are resistant and they're like, no, just fix my kid. I don't have a problem. <laughs> like, There's a lot of resistance there. Or even when the child says, hey, mom or dad, can, can we have a joint session? They're like, no, you're good. You're, you can do this on your own because it's hard to really confront their own resistance to change occurring or how they might be involved in the role 
or in the whole dynamic and the system. But I will say I really, really do almost require and encourage parents to come to the first session if their child is a minor under 18, because we sit down and we have a talk about my philosophy and my theory and how I view everything as a family system. So I want them to know from the get-go that their child is not the issue here, that the system is the issue. And if they expect the child to change without making some changes themselves, they're probably not going to see the progress that they're hoping for. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> I, I am, oh my gosh. And I'm sure sometimes they look at you wide-eyed like, what did we get ourselves into? Totally. But you know what? I like to look at the teenage client during that conversation because they're like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Sidebar also, the fact that you resist insurance because they require a diagnosis I think I need to have you back on the program to talk about that because (laughs) I am appalled at where we are right now. And I've actually had Dr. Alan Francis on the program who wrote the book Saving Normal. And he was the DSM steering committee chair for the DSM-4 and has written this book about how abysmal the DSM-5 is because it is so diagnostic inflation overload, basically any little moment you have where you're not 100% happy, they're going to diagnose you and give you a pill. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even ha- like creating that diagnosis, you're expected to do that in the first session, right? Oh, the right. first 45 mm-hmm. to 50 minute session. And there are times where I ethically feel like I need a couple sessions to figure this person out. I can't just slap a diagnosis on them and a label that is going to stick on a permanent record. Like I do not feel ethical and comfortable enough to do that. And so that was part of my ethical issue as a clinician also. Oh my gosh. I just wish there were more like you out there and maybe there are, but my fear is that everyone is just drinking the Kool-Aid. And yeah. like you said, and I use that same terminology, Mary Beth. It's so I'm like, you can't be slapping diagnoses on people because, because then again, getting back to identity, which is another part of what we're talking about today. If you have a label, it can be absolutely therapeutic. Okay. There's a label, there's diagnosis. There are people who've gone through this before. We have a treatment plan. There's a protocol, but also people can then internalize that and go, I guess I am such and such. Mm -hmm. And how disempowering instead of like, I'm going through a season of such and such. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful, different framework from which to consider and view yourself. And Mary Beth, I think this is a concern that's even more profound for young people as they're cultivating their identity to have some label slapped on them and then for them to step into it perhaps because we do live up to the labels we've been given. That's so true. And I was trained from a wellness perspective in my graduate program where, you know, diagnosis is not the first step. It's like really assessing the individual as an individual and as a human being. And, you know, maybe there are really good explanations for their behavior, whether it might stem from trauma. I used to work in domestic violence, and I can't tell you how many women were labeled with diagnoses when these were just symptoms of trauma. Right. So that just always really bothered me. Um, But I will say a lot of people you know, really want to use their insurance and say, well, what do I do then? (laughs) Right. 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 And in that case, I will say like there are out of network benefits. Like if someone qualifies for a diagnosis, I feel comfortable giving them, they can then hand that super bill with the diagnosis on it to their insurance and maybe get some reimbursement back likely. Um, So there are some ways to still have your sessions compensated for um, without kind of giving into this insurance 
diagnostic methodology just that can be kind of harmful in a lot of ways. Exactly. And I'll share a personal story. I went through a really bad breakup in my late 30s and it was taking me down. So I went to a therapist and because I know these things and I wanted to use my behavioral health plan with my insurance, at the end of the first session, I said, "Um, so what are you going to put down there for my (laughs) diagnosis? I said, because I'm not cool with anything that's going to say that I have clinical depression or anything. She goes, adjustment disorder. I go, cool. Yeah, Yeah, that's (laughs) like the least stigmatizing. If if I had to give someone a diagnosis, it it would probably be that one. Right. Because it's like a six-month diagnosis. It means that you're going through something different in your life and you're just struggling with it. Exactly. I was adjusting from being in a romantic relationship for two years, which I thought was going to have a future to now being broken up with and not having a future. That's a normal adjustment. Any of the emotions I experienced for that period were normal. (laughs) That's not abnormal. So please don't give me an abnormal diagnosis. So, but again, who knows that unless you're someone like me? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So really encouraging clients to advocate for like, what are you putting down if you are using insurance? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love that. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my love smarter, not harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. So let's talk a little bit now about how to face this, because again, we're speaking in this very academic sense, but when you are a person who is enmeshed and you're just starting to get some awareness now, as you spoke to so eloquently, there is shame surrounding this. You will feel disloyal. You will feel like you're betraying your family. And let's think about all the messages about family that we have in our culture, which oftentimes are beautiful. But if you are Velcroed to your family such that you can't carve out who you are and who you're meant to be. It's really, it's emotionally abusive. And and that's a strong stance, but I take that stance. And how do we help someone understand that extricating yourself from these dynamics is not disloyal? It's not unloving. It's very healthy because I know in that initial phase, they're going to feel really bad about taking steps toward independence. Yeah. So healthy differentiation or the term for moving toward that independence and that sense of self, it does not mean cutting ties with your family or no longer feeling close to them. Right. And, and I do think it's really hard. I will say most clients that come to me aren't coming because they acknowledge that they're enmeshed. They're coming because they're struggling with identity. They're struggling in relationships. They're struggling with their passion and purpose. They don't really know who they are or they don't have Um, the confidence in setting boundaries to be able to explore who they are. And then once we get talking over a couple sessions, that's when the enmeshment comes out. And it's normally like glaring and strong. And it is a delicate process to introduce the concept to them. And then the real work starts happening where they're like, oh my gosh, like if I really want to change this, this is the methodology of setting boundaries. And thank goodness I have some support around that because it is really hard. Yeah. So I definitely recommend like if this is sounding, if if this is resonating with you and you're like, oh my gosh, this is my experience and some light bulb is going off, like find a therapist to help you through this because, or, you know, someone qualified because it's a hard thing to do alone, if not impossible and not have the support around setting those boundaries in an enmeshed family system. And it's so underneath the surface 
And I used to give this example in class. It's just a hypothetical, but it kind of brings home the notion of what we're dealing with. So you can imagine a student goes to college first semester and the mother becomes depressed, right? Like we've spoke to a parent who's been so wrapped up in their child and their, their mothering role that she doesn't have any sense of, of, of her identity out, outside of the mothering role, the empty nest syndrome and so forth. And what we could see happening in a family is then, as, as you spoke to earlier, if, if this child, this 18-year-old who's trying to launch in a very healthy and a developmentally appropriate way, if this young person now feels responsible emotionally, maybe she, that's part of the enmeshment dynamic in their home. I take care of mom emotionally and I'm gone now at school and mom's depressed. And if you look at this from an individual perspective, well, she might go to see a therapist and let's deal with your depression and maybe she'll get some cognitive therapy, which I would love. Maybe she'll get some medication, which I would hate. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but if we treat the mother as the issue, well, the daughter is, is looking, if She's, if there's a family system enmeshment situation here, the daughter could actually end up coming home and then going to a community college mm-hmm. because at some at subconscious level is feeling responsible and the mom's depression, and I'm not saying the mom's intentionally doing this. This is subconscious for her as well. But her depression is all about, I'm going to be sick and my daughter rescuing me has been our dynamic. So I'll get what I want, which is my daughter close to me again if I'm depressed. Daughter comes home, the mom's depression lifts, and the daughter goes to community college and never gets the chance to get that distance and space and launch. That's the kind of thing that can happen if we're not aware of the systemic reality going on in families. I can't tell you how common that example is, yeah. unfortunately. Right. And so it's really working with the client. And this takes a while, right? Because I'm not going to just walk right in there and expect to convince you after 18, 20 years right. of living <laughs> in this system um, that, you know, you're going to change it in the snap of a finger. But really kind of working with the client to show them and challenge this idea that mom's probably actually never going to get better unless there's some boundaries established. Yeah. She's never going to have to. Right. What is that going to mean? Right. Like you've already given up your, you know, what you wanted to do maybe and going to college or some career path, you know, are you also going to give up your relationship? Are you also going to give up like your ability to travel or freedom or what else are you willing to give up before you're willing to say, okay, I have to be part of actually really helping mom get over this by switching up this dynamic. It strikes me as, oh, it's parentifying the child too. I mean, I guess young adult, but I mean, they're not trying to let this kid be a young adult, right? It's, it's parentifying. Like you have to now be in charge of mom's emotions, which of course messes with another realm of family systems that we talk about, the hierarchy within the home. The mother to keep the child close is going to give the child the authority to take care of her, which is just inverted. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think we can talk about this without talking about intergenerational dysfunction mm-hmm. and yes. the like, this is where I want to stop this cycle. This is where my true passion lies in like, do the work now, Yes. <laughs> right? Before you become an adult, before you become a parent, right? And it's never too late. You know, if you are a parent already, you can still do this work. But the importance of, you know, healing your own inner child wounds before you become a parent so that you're not projecting that and expecting the child to support you emotionally, because that is parentification. And it does contribute to enmeshment and triangulation and all these dysfunctional patterns within the system. And, you know, 
most people don't even know that they're doing this. That's the amazing thing to me is that people go through their entire lives just living this status quo without seeking healing and insight. Um, so if I can just convince people, which is what I'm trying to do through my platform right now yeah. on Instagram, your journey through, to sit there and like look at this bite-sized piece of information and be like, oh, wow. Um, I should probably do something about that. I might want to look at that, right? Um, and to just look at themselves to prevent these future generations from from feeling that. So powerful and so important. And you're right. In grad school, of course, I'm sure you did the same. In your family systems class, you do what's called a genogram. Mm -hmm. And the genogram is essentially like a family tree. But you're meant to identify these patterns, like you said, patterns of enmeshment, intergenerational patterns, which sometimes are crazy spooky. Like you can look at someone's genogram because we would share them with each other in class. And you can look at it and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, the oldest daughter gets pregnant at 18 out of wedlock every generation. Like <laughs> yeah. and it, like crazy things that you're like, how in the world does this happen? But these patterns, these assumptions of how life plays out. And even in the face of, I'm sure someone saying, hey, sweetie, let's not get pregnant at 18 like mom did. It's probably not the best plan, <laughs> but it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you heard the quote, if you don't heal it, you pass it on? I no, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a really powerful one. And it just speaks to, yeah, if you don't heal it, you do pass it on and, and intergenerationally without even knowing. And so who is going to be responsible for stopping that cycle? I love it when people wind up in my office and they're like, I want to be that person that stops this. Yes. So I commend them. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. Let's talk a little bit about how this plays out. And you spoke a little bit to it before playing out in romantic relationships. For example, you know, the mama's boy is a classic example. And I get questions about this. Well, he's super attached to his mom. We're told when we're dating, look at how he treats his mom because that's how he's going to treat his wife. And initially it can look like, oh, he dotes on his mom. He takes care of her. And then you get a little deeper into the dynamics and you see, oh, I don't know that there's any room for me in this mom-son love affair. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is a very common dynamic. And it depends, you know, what boundaries are you going to set with that? What is okay with you? And do you feel comfortable communicating that? And then it often does require, I mean, I would say the mama's boy, right? If that's what we're calling him. Yeah. <laughs> kind of has to be ready to acknowledge that. And he might not be. And that's yeah. the place that I see many couples get stuck is when he's not ready to say, you know, I'm, I can't, I can't challenge mom. I can't cut right. that tie. Like this is the love that I've always received and I don't want to give that up. And, you know, it'll be seen as a betrayal if I challenge it. So, yeah. it, and then the other partner is, frustrated because they're like, well, aren't I worth it to you? Like right. there's just so much frustration. So that is like a 
typical couples dynamic in therapy. Yeah. If they're not willing to go to counseling, I don't see a lot of hope for this. I see a lot of years of pain, of feeling like you're playing second fiddle to your mother-in-law, which we know the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamic is already stereotypically supposed to be contentious. (laughs) So I hope that they go see someone like you and can feel hopeful because I'm usually like, okay, I don't know, step away from this because I don't know you're gonna, you're not going to win this battle. Especially yeah. if there wasn't a father in the home, oftentimes the son talking about now hierarchy, he gets pulled up into the, the marital hierarchy. I'm not saying anything incestuous like that, but emotional incest can happen. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that is intense emotional enmeshment to the point that he again now is taking on the role that his father abandoned when he left the marriage. And that gets so sticky and complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to having hope or not about that dynamic, I would emphasize that it's so important how it's approached, right? So it can't be Let's, let's say it's a typical heterosexual couple and there's a male and a female. It can't be the female goes to her therapist. She complains about it, brings him in, blames right. him for being enmeshed. Like that is never going to work. Right. <laughs> so it's this male partner would have to be so inclined and inspired and value his relationship enough to seek his own help with a therapist who isn't that therapist can't sit with him and be like, you're enmeshed. You're the problem. Blah, blah, blah. Like you, the yeah. approach has to be so delicate. Yeah. And so I think that really, really matters because some women already have an agenda when they go into couples therapy and they're like, he's the problem. He's a mess. <laughs> you need to fix him. <laughs> and that's just never going to work. No, no, it's never going to work ever. And just speaks to what you spoke to earlier as well, just the idea of healing ourselves. And I'm such an advocate for meeting your own needs. And I'm almost to like a stoic's perspective because For example, that mother who's got her son tethered to her because she's not been willing to deal with her own wounds of the divorce or the abandonment or whatever happened with that marriage or if there wasn't a marriage, whatever, that relationship, she's still feeling wounded and she's never taken care of her own emotional healing. And by not doing that, she is chaining her son to her, which again is emotionally abusive because he's not now freed up to go and have an adult romantic relationship. And people don't see it that way, which is what I love what you're doing. I'm not trying to shame anyone or blame anyone. I'm just trying to let people be aware that there's very subtle emotional abuse that's going on when we're not taking care of our own needs. And even in marriage, and I tell my community all the time, I don't expect my husband to make me happy ever, ever. Mm -hmm. That's not his job. It is just not. And luckily for me, I was single for forever. So I didn't get married till 42. So I clearly knew no one's job was to make me happy, right? And when you're single that long, the, the flip side of maybe the moments of loneliness, the flip side is that you do gain this understanding that it's an inside job, my happiness, my emotional health. It's my job to work on all that. Because of all this stuff we're speaking to, I see what happens when we don't take care of our own emotional woundedness, our own emotional healing is our job. And when we do that, it's a gift to everyone around us, particularly our family members. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And one thing I hear enmeshed families say over and over again, it's like their quote is, well, that's just the way it is. (laughs) <laughs> and, oh. oh gosh, I have this like visceral reaction. <laughs> <Ew>. to <that. laughs> Me too. Yes. And so I think about it though, in the context of generations, if that's the message that has been drilled in your head, this is just the way it is. You're not challenging anything. Yeah. You're not really, like acknowledging 
what you might be able to change or where you might be able to grow and develop individually, what needs you might have that need to be met. And then you're just perpetuating. So, you know, you grew up as the enmeshed daughter and now you're the enmeshed mother who's creating an enmeshed son. Yeah. Who's, now your son's struggling and we're just going through the motions because it's just the way it is, right? Oh <laughs> until somehow this comes to a head and someone breaks that cycle. And that generalizes to my other favorite orientation, which my community knows is cognitive. So those beliefs, right? That's an underlying limiting belief that the entire family just taps their foot to that music. That's just the way it is in this family. That's absolutely going to generalize that that's just the way it is in relationships, in work, in life. And that is a dark cloud to live under and talk about crippling someone, someone believing, well, we can't advocate for change in our own lives, in the community, because that's just the way it is. I mean, those kinds of messages make my skin crawl. I can imagine you absolutely cringe every time you hear something like that. Definitely. And when you've lived in a culture of that messaging, it's like there's apathy that's created. And, and that, I mean, think about it. That's why the kids that come in my office are like, I feel lost. I feel crippled. I feel trapped and and I don't know how to fix it because there's this apathy that's been passed down generationally. So it's kind of giving them, um, the motivation and the, I guess, inspiration that things can actually change with these techniques. If you implement them in your life and there, there is a way that, you know, things don't have to just be this way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, especially young people now just cut, just numb out just mm-hmm. through YouTube or TikTok and just, just zone out in this apathy. And it may manifest as depression. It may manifest as anxiety. And it may manifest as just like you said, a sense of, of feeling lost and unsure of who they are and their place in this world. And we just can go to our phone and just check out of that emotion instead of looking at that emotion and what that emotion is trying to tell us. Mm-hmm. I just did Instagram live last night with Dr. Lauren Cook about exactly that, right? Really? We're using our phones as distraction methods yes. and tools and we're zoning out and we're numbing and we're avoiding our big emotions. And what would it feel like to, to not grab for that phone every time you felt that and mm. to kind of with it for a little bit. Like for some people, that sounds like the worst thing in the world. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. Well, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, I always um, host Thanksgiving and I have a lot of nephews and nieces and they're all in the teenage years. And I decided it was going to be no phone Thanksgiving. Yeah, <laughs> I had a basket at the door. Oh my gosh, the resistance. Oh. I bet. I bet. <laughs> Become like a third arm. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm the wicked witch aunt. It's <laughs> just refusing. I'm like, we can all watch football together. I mean, we're not like going to be Luddites. We're going to have technology. There's still a TV, which in our day was like, get away from the boob tube. You're watching too much TV. Now right. no one cares about the TV. They just want people off their phones. Yeah, we're so attached to them. It's oh. instinctual, right? They set off like these dopamine receptors. It's yes. almost like a like a drug response for a lot of people. It's really scary. I just watched that documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. Oh, so many people have recommended that. I need Mm -hmm. to watch it. Yeah, it's very scary. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast. And I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. 
I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May, tim at loveandlifemedia.com. So let's talk a little bit, though, about the hope again. What are some brass tacks that you would offer to a client in your therapy practice or even to someone who right now is kind of like starting to resonate with this and, and think, hmm, this may be me. How can you identify? Again, these are so intangible. How do you start to take those first steps and push through or move through, maybe it's a better way of saying it, move through some of the shame and the feelings of betrayal that you know you're going to experience? Yeah. So the first step I would recommend is finding someone to support you in this journey Mm -hmm. because you're going to need it when you take the next step to start setting some boundaries. You are going to get some pushback. Anytime that you're really shifting a family system and shaking things up, it's uncomfortable. So you're going to feel some uncomfortable emotions in association with that. So finding someone who specializes in family dynamics to just help generate insight and support you throughout this process, because it's likely been one that you've been trained to see as normal and you've been blind to. And so having someone trained is is really important. But Secondly, like setting those boundaries, right? Um, Maybe you need more alone time. Maybe you don't go over there every day of the weekend and, you know, start to challenge some of these expectations and maybe considering the frequency of communication that you have Mm. with your family members, especially if it's stressing you out in any way and just to create some healthy separation And then also I do a lot of somatic work in my practice. So like recognizing where we store emotions in our body and regulating our nervous system. And once you start to get into that type of work, you can then tune into yourself around your family and start to recognize, you know, what actually feels good and what doesn't, because you've probably lost that sense if you've been in a heavily enmeshed environment because you're just doing what you have to, doing what's expected. So it's almost like developing like a thought and body scan radar for your experiences that you're having, even in the moment, like, wow, I feel really anxious when mom acts that way. Or, Mm. oh, the whole family just shut down when dad did that. Like there's almost this new insight and awareness that's developed and you can feel that. Oh, I love that work. We did like a workshop in my family systems class and it was so exactly what you talk about, but we did this kind of guided meditation Mm -hmm. and we were asked to think about our mother and our father. And of course we are now in this meditative state and to feel where we, where they live essentially within us. And it was so, yeah, it was so interesting because it was different places for people. Um, For me, my dad was like in my lungs, which I thought was, and my mom was like in my heart. So interesting. And it was interesting because I was currently going through some enmeshment myself and some of my own differentiation uh, because I was dating a guy. It was very, it was very fairy tale. I was dating this guy and my parents didn't approve of him. (laughs) And I went to grad school right after college. 
And I'm learning all this stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I'm going through all this. (laughs) It's interesting because I think you can interpret that in so many different ways. Like I think my father was just a force and he was such an amazing father. I'm so blessed. So I think I carried him in my lungs. That's where I felt his presence in my body because he was this life force for me. And then at this time, because of my own differentiation process and the fact that we were enmeshed and the fact that I was feeling like I was betraying my father by carrying on with my boyfriend. And because of that, I was feeling stifled and perhaps even a bit suffocated. And so, again, that's where I felt his presence in my body, in my lungs. Yeah, that's an amazing example. I can even it make me think of one myself. And um, I, so my dad, I love him. He's, we're so close. And he's, <laughs> but he is someone who, when he gets frustrated, he'll drop a few F bombs, <laughs> <laughs> you know, has some language and said words. And so I just kind of like got used to that. Like, you know, if the computer wasn't working correctly or you know, something dumped off the stove or whatever, like I got used to hearing that language. And it was just his way of taking off his frustration, right? And then I went away to college and, uh, you know, I wasn't around it for a long time. And then I remember coming back home the next summer and he would do that. And I would have this like stress response <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, my nervous system had been away from that norm mm-hmm. for a while. And this is like the beauty of space yes. in terms of like recognizing, you know, how does this really impact me? So I'd been living in an environment for 18 years before that, where I was like, oh, uh, that's just what he does. Like, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> right. And now... I came back after having some time and some space and difference, something different, right? And then was like, oh, oh, <laughs> I don't like that. Like that yeah. is like stirring something in my nervous system and creating like a stress or an anxiety or something. Um, so that is an example. And I, I didn't struggle with enmeshment. If anything, I was like almost too differentiated probably. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will say, I think that is an example of, you know, you can be in a system for 18 years and then, and not even recognize something until you leave it. And then what do you do when you come back and you realize you have these insights, right? That's the, the beauty of separation and space, but also you might need some support around that. That's so, so key. And I do want to underscore, and you mentioned it earlier in the program, but I do want to underscore what we're talking about is not cutting off. Mm -hmm. It's not distancing yourself. It's not detaching entirely. A true healthy connection with your family is about closeness and separateness, and they are not mutually exclusive. They absolutely coexist. And I would argue, and many others have before, that you can't even have a true intimacy with anyone, and certainly not your family, unless you have that separateness in that space, because it's got to be a true individual connecting with another individual. And if we are so fused, then there is, in fact, no individual happening and, and no individual a part of this dynamic. And that's what's troubling, because like you said, so... So clearly, if we don't have that separateness, we cannot get that. And we think we have, we're so close, getting back to what we started with. We're so close. You're not close. There's no closeness there because there's no two individuals having a connection that's truly intimate. Yeah, there's no individual respect. And on an adult level, that is 
vital yes. right, to have a successful relationship. Boundaries are not mean. They are not mm-hmm. aggressive. They are compassionate because they protect your relationships and the health of them. And you you said that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I did a, a little post. It's been a while. And I said, boundaries are loving not only to yourself, but to everyone around you. And some people said, well, how are they loving to someone? Because no one wants a boundary. It's loving because now people know who you truly are. And they have the choice now to interact with you based on your authentic self, not just some sham of a person that you are putting in in front of them because you think that that's the acceptable version of you. Yeah, it prevents you from developing resentment towards them time after time after they've crossed your boundary too. And if you feel like you can hide that resentment, like you can't, like (laughs) someone's going to feel that even energetically and it's going to have a negative impact on your relationship. So knowing your boundaries, setting your boundaries is a protective factor against the resentment that can destroy your relationships. And again, that all will generalize the work that you do with your family. And I can't stress this enough. And it's hard to identify because it is so nebulous at times, but that work you do with your family will absolutely play out in all your other relationships with your friendships, with coworkers, and certainly with your romantic relationships. Absolutely. Mary Beth, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I know for a fact I want to have you back on because we didn't even get to talk about triangulation or all kinds of, I have a lot more in my family systems repertoire. I've been wanting to cover these topics for a while and Sometimes it's just a lot more fun to do it with someone else as opposed to me getting up and doing a a grad school lecture. So thank you so much for joining me. This was so nice. Just having someone else in this space that totally understands family systems, like that I can kind of like geek out with, but also (laughs) give our listeners some really tangible tools and and recommendations and psychoeducation has been so fun. So I'd love to come back again. Wonderful. Let everyone know where to find you, to follow you so they can get some more of this goodness. Yeah, so I am on Instagram. My it's at your journey through, and my website is called yourjourneythrough.com. I also have a podcast uh, called My Therapist Thinks, and that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So tune in. Fantastic. Thanks again. The love and life hack for this week is you can be too close for comfort. Thanks as always for joining us this week. I'm so grateful you've spent this time with me. If you have 30 seconds, I would love it if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and write a quick little review, just a couple sentences to say that you enjoy the program. That means so much to me and helps others find the love and life community. Speaking of which, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter at loveandlifemedia.com. Hit the subscribe button or ask me a question or let me know what topic you want me to cover on the podcast. I am here for you. Also, I'm going to be here for you facilitating group support sessions. We'll be doing these virtually, of course. We're going to cover a couple different content areas. And those on the email list will be the first to know about these groups. So if that interests you at all, be sure you've subscribed. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson April. Thanks again for joining me. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.